ovation. That happened in the first service, and I said it made me uncomfortable, but I like that one. That was good. <laughs> that was good. I like that a lot. Um, anyways, uh, good morning. I, I can't wait to open up God's Word with you. Um, I hope you had a, a fun 4th of July. Everybody's here, so you didn't uh, blow yourself up. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully not too bad of sunburn, but hopefully you had a whole lot of fun. We had fun for our 4th of July. We hang out, hung out with family, and we took Ellie to fireworks. And uh, if you don't know, Ellie's our three-year-old, and, and we haven't taken her yet to fireworks, and so we went this year, and she hated it. She hated it. Every second of it, she hated it. Uh, we got out there, and she was already starting to freak out. And then, like, there were fireworks. As it was starting to get dark, like, fireworks were happening in the distance because everybody in their neighborhood is, is shooting out fireworks. And so we're sitting out outsiders just waiting for these fireworks to come. And she's already anxious. And then eventually they start going off, and she loses it. She loses it. Uh, it's the lights. She thinks that the fireworks are going to come at us, you know. And then it's the sound, too, which I get. They are loud. I don't even like the loud sounds. But she did not like it. I have a picture. I'm not going to show it uh, for the sake of uh, Ellie. I don't want to embarrass her. She's three. She would know. But, you know, I got a PKs, pastor's kids, you know. Uh, you got to protect them sometimes. Anyways, uh, the... And, in June, this last June, was the 10-year anniversary of my favorite feature of the iPhone. So the iPhone has been around since 2007, which is wild to think about, but 2007 is when the iPhone came out. And then over the years, it's changed size and features and all the things. But in 2013, my favorite feature came out, the flashlight. I love the flashlight. Uh, the reason why I love it is because I use it every single day. When uh, it's dark outside, I use it to take out the trash. And so, you know, it's Texas. There's snakes and things. We had a turtle in our, in our yard the other day. A turtle! We're not even close to, like, water. Like, where did you come from? You are lost, led astray. Like, do I need to take you somewhere? Like, it was bizarre. And we get frogs and stuff, too. So, like, I want to make sure that I don't step on an animal, okay? So I use my flashlight um, for that. Anytime I work on my car... Using my flashlight, got to use it. Uh, and then, there, you know, there's times Ellie gets things stuck on the, under the couch. And so I use my flashlight, see if it's under there, which nine times out of ten it is. And so we get it. Uh, but then, you know, there's just, you just, it's just very useful. You just use it all the time. I use it every single day. And especially when it's dark in the house and you have to walk across a playroom. For many of you, you know that is very dangerous. You either flip on the light or you use a flashlight. Uh, sometimes in the middle of the night, you don't want to turn on the light, so you just use your phone. So, uh, but anyways, we use it every single day, and I, I know many of you do as well. You know, what they say, especially with our phones, is often they, people say that we have access to more information than any other generation that has ever existed, which is true. But we also have access to light more than any other generation that has ever existed. But even though people have access to light, most people are walking in darkness. What do I mean? You see, the psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning describes the Bible as light. And today, people have more access to the Bible 
than any other generation that has ever existed, yet most people don't read it. If you don't believe me, I have stats. According to the American Bible Society, 87% of American households own a Bible, and the average household has three. This does not include the Bible app, which has millions and millions of downloads. Also, the American Bible Society does a survey every year called the State of the Bible, and it measures America's Bible engagement. In the last few years, there has been a plummet. So I'll show you. It's right there. So you can see it's kind of been hovering around the 50% mark for the last decade. But for whatever reason, in 2022 and 2023, it always measures the year before, a huge plummet. And you don't even have to be a stats person to know that is huge. But many people might think, well, that's America. Not everybody's a Christian, so we can assume, obviously, that they're not going to be reading their Bible. Okay, Lifeway Research, capturing Protestant Christians, so that's you and I, found that only 32% read the Bible daily, while the rest read sporadically, weekly, monthly, yearly, or never at all. One of the articles concluded that people are fond of the Bible, but they don't actually read it. So what is the problem? What is the issue? Well, we're going to diagnose that this morning, but more importantly, we're going to provide solutions. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn to Psalm 119.105. That's where we're going to be in today. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the book. It's what's called an acrostic poem. Uh, if, you were, if you liked English class, you'll, you'll know what that is, an acrostic poem. It uses the Hebrew alphabet as its structure. When you look at your Bible, you'll see that it's broken up, Psalm 119 is broken up into eight verse chunks, Okay. Each chunk starts with, the first word of that chunk starts with a Hebrew letter. Psalm 119, 105 is one of those verses. It starts out the chunk. And the chunk that this verse comes out of represents noon, which is the Hebrew letter for N. In, in, uh, in seminary, when I was memorizing these things, uh, the letter in Hebrew looks like a nun praying and so that's how I memorized that it was the letter N. So you just got to survive sometimes, and that's what I did to do that. Anywho, uh, 176 verses, Psalm 119. But this morning, instead of unpacking all 176, we're going to look at one. And the reason why we're going to look at one is because I believe Psalm 119, 105 will help us reset our hearts and in our minds when it comes to Scripture. So, if you're with me, which I hope you are, Psalm 119, 105 says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a very simple verse. It's a verse that you may have heard before. But this morning, we're going to divide up our time 
breaking down this verse into three parts. And as we go, we will diagnose issues and also provide solutions. So the first thing that we're going to point out this morning is this. The Bible is God's word. When the psalmist was writing this, he is writing it to God. When he writes your word, he is referring to the Bible, meaning he viewed the Bible as God's word. Now, on a Sunday morning in church, you would want to assume that everybody in the room believes that this is God's word. But unfortunately, we cannot assume that. Gallup released a poll in 2022, this was just last year, that found that only 40% of Protestant Christians believe the Bible is the word of God. Now, when I saw that, it was shocking to me, but also I believe it. You know, as a young adults pastor, I, I minister to basically 20-year-olds, and the most common question that I get asked is, why is the Bible the word of God if it was written by a bunch of human authors? The, the issue is not that they're questioning at all. Questioning is a good thing. It's healthy. It's how you grow. The issue is not that. The issue is what people do with their questioning. Oftentimes, people will not take the time to actually dig to find answers. And they just sit in their doubt. Well, it's not the word of God. It's, it's written by a bunch of human authors, blah, 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 blah. And they don't do anything to actually find the truth. And so they just sit in their doubt. Or they look for answers in the wrong places. And they'll find a different conclusion that is different from ours. Or they will actually, if there's believers in their life, in their family or friends or whoever it might be, then they will ask them for the answer. And like in our case, with me, that's what they did which is a good thing. The solution is to give people a reason why. And for us to know why we believe this is the word of God. It's for your own faith, but also for the faith of other people that you know and you minister to and the people that are around you. It is not okay to just say, just because it is, or, I don't know, that doesn't fly today, people. It does not fly. We have to know why we believe what we believe. So the solution is to give them a reason why. First Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So, the reason why we believe the Bible is the word of God is because we believe in inspiration. This means that we believe that the Holy Spirit used the personality, the vocabulary, the experiences, and emotions of the human writers throughout history to write down exactly what he desired, making their words God's words. And why do we believe that? Well, the Bible proves it. And, and two of the things that I love to highlight when I'm having these conversations, I love to highlight two things. 
the unity of the Bible and the prophecies in the Bible. So, first, unity. The Bible is not just one book, but actually is a library of 66 books collected over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three continents in three languages. Wildly diverse people, but also wildly diverse literature. But the most remarkable part is the unity of these wildly diverse books. You would think that they would contradict one another, but instead they actually complement one another. And to illustrate that to you, I have a picture that I want to show you. You see, this is a graph of all the cross-references or connections that are made in the Bible. You start with Genesis all the way to the left, and it moves through all the books until you get to Revelation. 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. It's beautiful, isn't it? Pastor Brett has that picture in his office. Is anybody in the room Marvel fans? Like Marvel superhero fans, yeah? You guys are very hesitant to raise your hand. That's cool. <laughs> I don't know why. They're awesome. They're great movies. Um, we often love those movies because of the connections that they have in them. We're like, oh, did you see that? That means this. Like we do that when we're watching, and there's people that have no clue, and they're like, these people are nuts. Um, but, amen, I got an amen for that. Um, <laughs> incredible. Anyways, the, I, I want, what I want to tell you is this. Marvel's got nothing on the Bible. The Bible is so complex, yet so beautiful, and it's unified. It tells of one epic story of God's redemption of humanity centered around Jesus Christ, our hero our Savior. And Jesus got to unpack all these cool connections with his disciples when he, uh, after he resurrected, Luke 24, verse 27, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I would have loved to be a part of that, that conversation. When he sits with his disciples, he's like, when Moses wrote this, yeah, that was about me. When David was writing that psalm about being afflicted and he He's talking about being beaten and, and, and your hands being pierced. Yeah, that was about, that was about like, like my crucifixion. And, and when the minor prophets are talking about this king, this Messiah, this thing, yeah, that was about me. I would have loved that. And the cool thing is that when Jesus is making this, these connections, it laid the foundation for the New Testament writers. Because what do they do in the New Testament? They connect all of the dots one unified story, and all of it, all of it, all of it screams divine author. He is behind all of it. The second thing is prophecy. The Bible is the only book that repeatedly made predictions about the future, and they actually happened. In the Bible, approximately 2,500 prophecies are made. And 2,000 of them have been fulfilled. The rest of the 500 have to do with the last days, second coming of Christ. Prophecies were made about the rise and fall of kingdoms and kings, famines and wars, but the gems are the prophecies of Jesus. Yet again, he is 
the center of all of it. 300 total prophecies about Jesus' life spread over thousands of years. Prophecies about his virgin birth and birthplace of Bethlehem, lineage of David, his signs and miracles, his preaching and teaching, healing people, rising people from the dead, his betrayal, his beatings, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. In Luke 24, same chapter as before, in verse 44, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Yet again, it's centered on Jesus. And it can all be proven. Man does not make 2,500 predictions about the future and they happen. It doesn't happen like that. We don't have the capability of doing that at all. It screams divine author. So when you look at the unity and the prophecy of the Bible, it makes you look up and say, God, you wrote this. It is your word. Thank you, Lord, for this. You are a master author. You know, there are several religious books that claim to be the word of God. Yet, the Bible is the only one that claims it and can prove it. So why does any of this matter? We just went through all that. Why does any of this matter? Because who the author is determines the book's authority. You know, I get, I get book recommend, recommendations a lot, either text messages or maybe they'll have a physical copy and they'll say, hey, you should read this. What I do, and maybe you do the same thing, what I'll do is I'll flip it to the back. And I, I see who the author is. I want to know, like, okay, what was their education like, their experiences, what do they do for, you know, the, the, their work or anything? Who's the endorsements for this book? And if I feel like this person has the credibility and the authority to write on this subject, I, I'll probably read it. But if I read it and I'm like, ah, I don't know, I don't really think that they will know a whole lot on this subject, then you know what? I'm, I'm probably not going to give it time of day. Probably not going to read it. So if a holy, all-wise creator God composed a book concerning the subject of life and death, he has the credibility and the authority to do so, then we ought to read it. And it's not, it's not by accident that when people have been uh, criticizing the scriptures, they try to criticize the legitimacy of the authorship and inspiration. It's because they don't like the authority that it brings. So that's what they attack. If you take away the author, then there's no authority. But they can't do it. They've tried for thousands of years. This is the word of God. And it has authority in our lives. If we like it or not. And that's why the psalmist describes the Bible as his word, but he also describes it as a light. 
Second point this morning is this. God's word is a lamp. It's a lamp. Now, when you think of a lamp, you might think of like your living room, and you got lamps. You got floor lamps, you got lamps on tables. But before we talk about what kind of lamp the psalmist is writing about, let's unpack what a lamp does. A lamp gives light to dark places. It shines light so you can see. You can't see if the room is dark or if it's dark outside. You need light. In a similar way, the Bible gives light to dark places. It is the, it is, its job is to give light so you can see clearly the truth of who God is and life. We see the truth of God's character, his hum, uh, our humanity, sin, judgment, Jesus, who he is. The gospel is outlined in the scriptures, and we learn matters of eternity. If you want to know the truth about these things, you go to the lamp to see clearly what it is. Apart from it, you cannot see the truth of these things. You need God's word. Second Peter, so going back to something that Peter said, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, and we have the prophetic word, which we just unpacked. It's a prophetic word. More fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He says, in the time being, as we're waiting for Christ to come back, for the time being, you would do well at opening this up and reading it as like a lamp to a dark place. As you know, we live in dark places. Darkness is not a thing in of itself, but is the absence of light. They are not opposing equals. But when light is not present, that's where darkness lies. And when light shows up, darkness goes away. So that means that dark places are environments where God and his word are not present. And that's evident in our culture. We understand that we, our music and sports and media, in our schools, politics, stores, places that we work at, these things in our world have no regard for the truth of Scripture or really have no regard for God. We get that. We understand that because it's in our face every single day. But often we are quick to point out the darkness in our world and we're not so quick to address the darkness in our hearts and in our homes. The issue is that we have replaced light with things that are bright. I said I love my flashlight. I don't like my screen. It distracts me all the time. It distracts me from my daughter and my wife. It distracts me from God all the time. And we have made our devices little G gods 
that have replaced God in his word. Want knowledge? Google it. Need something? Amazon it. Want comfort? Binge watch a show or play a game. Want truth? YouTube it. Listen to somebody else to tell you. Want intimacy? Turn to a dating app or porn. Want connection? We got group chats and social media. And you know, it's not like we just go to these things. These things are calling us because we have these things called notifications. And so every 10 minutes, the thing is dinging at you. Hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. And companies are getting paid and making money off of you how much you pick this up. They don't care about you. They want to make money off you. And yet we turn to it all the time. And without us knowing it, we have slowly tricked ourselves into thinking that we don't need God. And that changes you. It changes your worldview. It changes your decision-making, your thoughts, your words, and actions. And it leads you into dark places because you've replaced light with things that are bright. And we stumble and we fall. And we hurt ourselves. And oftentimes we hurt others too. Every single one of us in this room has to decide. Do you want to be shaped by an algorithm or by the Holy Spirit? The solution is simple. And that's the good news is that you must replace your screens with God's word. All of it? All of your screen time? No. I'm, I'm, no. No. Most of it? Yeah, probably. But these things in our, our computers and our TV, there's, it's a part of us. It's a part of our lives. It's inevitable. But most of your screen time? Yeah, probably. Do I need to... Does that mean I have to read my Bible, like, you know, four hours of Bible study every day? No. Do we need to increase our Bible intake with listening to Scripture and reading Scripture? 100%. Look at the stats. And you know. In your own personal life, you know. But no, I'm, just, I'm not just talking about reading Scripture. We must replace that time with doing things that the Bible says. Like, for example, instead of staying up late watching TV, go to bed. Go to bed. The Bible talks a lot about rest. You need to rest. Watching TV for four hours is not rest. It's not. It's not. Instead of watching five episodes, maybe watch one or two, and then just spend time with your family. If the only family time that you have is watching TV, that's an issue. You're not talking to one another. Check in with one another. Maybe do a Bible study with your family. Pray with one another. Check on, go on a walk, you know? Like, do it. Pray, meditate on the scripture. Like, listen. I personally, and this is, you're hearing this for the first time, I've been wrestling with this for weeks, okay? I 
don't want to be controlled by technology. It's consumed my life for too long. I want to be shaped and changed by the Spirit. And the only way that we do that is, is changing my intakes. And I'm done. I'm done. I pray that you're done too. So there's action to be made. And when we do these things, we bring light into our hearts and in our homes. And it's one thing to read the Bible. It is another thing to apply it, which leads to my third point. It's a lamp to our feet. So it's a lamp. It shines bright. But it's a lamp to our feet. Uh, I didn't unpack what kind of lamp the psalmist was talking about. For this reason, I'm going to unpack it now. The psalmist said, it's a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. The, the lamp that he is describing is most likely a, a small clay oil lamp. And I actually have one right here. Damon Cox gifted this to me. Uh, I was hoping he'd be here this morning, but he's not. Um, you know, I asked for a light one time, and he gave me this. I'm like, what are you doing, bro? Um, <laughs> but uh, no, he gifted it to me, and you'll, you'll know why here in a second. But... Uh, but this is a replica of, of what they would have in biblical times. They put oil in here, and then they'd light it, and then it would be a lamp. And it'd show light. This lamp is only useful for lighting up what's right in front of you. This is not going to light up a room, but it will light up what's right in front of you. So in biblical times, people would use these lamps to see what is right in front of them. They see pitfalls and slip spots, traps, snakes. The lamp showed them what steps to take and what steps to avoid. The Bible, as the psalmist is describing it, is like a lamp, like this kind of lamp. It shows you what steps to take and what steps not to take. And it gives you clarity on what your next step should be, and guess what? It's personal to you. It says, this is a lamp to my feet and my path. Every single one of us in this room is on a path. It's a spiritual growth journey, and everybody's at a different place in our journey, but you are on a path. And the scripture shows you clearly through the power of the Spirit what your next step should be in your spiritual growth journey. The issue is that we struggle to take the next step. A lot of us are just content where we're at, and so we just want, we want no change. So we just want to be, everything's good. Or we just don't want to relinquish any control. We want to be in control of everything. And so we don't take the next step that the Lord is asking. We like our way better than God's way, and so we stiff arm it. Or maybe we're just simply afraid. God's asking us to do something that is risky, and we're like, I, ah, uh, and I just don't want to do it. And as a result, our faith becomes very stagnant, and we become ineffective in our faith as well. And a lot of times, we end up being joyless in our faith. The solution to this is to trust Jesus with your next step. Maybe your next step is trusting Jesus as your Savior, to, for him to save you. Maybe you've never done that before. 
and you need to do that. Maybe your next step is to start consistently reading the Bible. Maybe your next step is to confess sin that you've been hiding. It's just eating you up alive because you've been keeping a secret. And you need to tell them that. Not just God, but you need to tell the person that you've sinned against. Tell them. Maybe your next step is to, is to forgive someone that's hurt you and you're holding on to bitterness and it's eating you alive. You need to forgive. Maybe your next step is to say you're sorry and ask for forgiveness. Maybe your next step is to stop raging and having a temper and tame your tongue. Maybe your next step is to stop judging people and start loving people like our Savior. Maybe your next step is to get rid of things that you've made idols in your life. You need to destroy them. Maybe your next step is to stop overspending and coveting things all the time. Maybe your next step is to have accountability in your life because that's something that you don't have. Maybe your next step is to serve and use the gifts that God has given you. Give yourself away. Maybe your next step is to join a church community, a group. Maybe your next step is to get baptized. We have a baptism class coming up next week. Alan does a great job of that. Maybe the next step is to go to that. Maybe your next step is to start praying for and with your family. Maybe your next step is to memorize scripture, not just read scripture. Maybe your next step is to get in the habit of actually sharing the gospel because that hasn't been something evident in your life. I want to tell you that the list that I just shared is not Jared's suggestions, but these are all clear commands found in Scripture. The light, uh, the, the Bible, is a light. And we see these commands, and so it shines bright on, okay, this is what your next step should be. The Holy Spirit saying, hey, this is it right here. He lights it up. But... You have to be the one to take the step. He can show you it, but you have to do it. Is it easy? No, it's not. But it's what's best. Jesus says in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. His word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Follow him. Trust him, even if it's hard, even if you don't like it, because otherwise you're just going to stumble and fall in darkness. And he says, don't do that. Follow me. Follow my word. You know, about a year ago, I started working in young adult ministry, and that was a step. A step that I really didn't know was the right step, to be honest with you. I felt like the Lord was leading me this way, and so I was obedient in that way. And as we were kind of thinking through, like, what do we want to do in this ministry? One of the things we want to do is create a, a midweek gathering of young adults where we can hang out and we can worship and pray and we can study the Word. And we were trying to come up with a name. This psalm, this verse, I, it would not leave my mind. I was dreaming about lamps. Like, how bizarre is that? 
you know. I couldn't get it out of my mind. And so we ended up calling it the lamp. As a ministry, we are committed to help young adults take their next step in their spiritual growth journey. That's what we do, and that we love to do it. And in May was our one-year anniversary of doing that. But I want to tell you that that's not just a young adults thing. That's a central thing. We are committed to help you in your journey to take the next step. I said earlier that it's a personal step, which it is true. It's personal to your life. But that does not mean that you have to do it alone. As a church family, we want to help you 